Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we are starting to wind down. Um, these are going to be the last few episodes of the podcast. Uh, so I wanted to start to close on a happier, I guess, note. Um, uh, so this episode is going to be about mitigating bias, and it's going to be about how even though most of the biases we've talked about, there is no solution per se. Um, there are, you know, there is actual research around how to mitigate bias. It's a relatively young field that we're looking at, like how to even try to approach some of these things. Uh, but in the past 10, 20 years or so, there's been some research trying to deal with, okay, now that we've identified these biases, what can we actually do about them? So I'm going to talk about a little bit of that. But all of that to say, like, if you look at the... Um, Wikipedia entry for mitigating bias, like one of the first things it says is, quote, coherent, comprehensive theories of cognitive bias mitigation are lacking. Uh, it's a bit of an understatement. Uh, so like I said, it's kind of early days yet. And, you know, uh, like we've said before, like awareness does nothing, right? Just knowing about the bias with the sole exception of the um, illusion of transparency bias we talked about before, the one where you think people know what you're thinking, but they don't. Um, and it makes you nervous on stage if you tell people about that, that actually does mitigate that bias. But that's like the one situation where knowing about the bias actually reduces it. Everything else, if you know about it, it's not enough. Um, and another, you know, and this is probably not surprising, but another thing to keep in mind is that no one solution works for all biases, right? It's going to be a mix of strategies. Um, and another thing that you would think would make you immune but doesn't make you immune is being an expert in something. So just because you're an expert in something, it doesn't eliminate your bias in making decisions about that something. And so we've seen this in all sorts of fields. Um, uh, and I'll talk about one in a second. And um, a lot of these uh, mitigation approaches really come down to what are called like two system models. And we've talked before about Daniel Kahneman's um, thinking fast and slow and this, you know, sort of basic idea that you've got a system one and a system two way of thinking. System one handles problems like, hey, is that person angry at me? Let me quickly read their, you know, facial expression and come to a conclusion super fast. And system two handles like heavier lifts, like what's 1,077 plus 4,062,000 and whatever. Something hard, right? So your system two has to do harder work. It thinks things through more slowly. And a lot of these um, uh, mitigation factors are around um, how do I get you out of system one and into system two so that you don't jump to these incorrect conclusions. Um, so going back to the whole thing about being like an expert in something, not making you immune to biases, one of the problems they found is that there are sort of checklists for how you're supposed to do surgery, right? This highly skilled things and doctors were skipping steps. And so they added in a factor of um, people who would, uh, the nurses would then sort of back check and make sure that the doctors did all the things on the checklist. And when they did this, right, infection rates went from 11% to literally 0%. Many lives were saved, many millions of dollars uh, were saved as well. Uh, but the idea, the idea is that once they gave nurses the authority to catch, you know, those errors, right, and get another pair of eyes on that stuff, um, those, those biases went down. And these are doctors, right? They're experts in their field, but they're still, you know, going to be in a rush. They're still going to make mistakes. They're still going to skip things in this step. And the checklist itself, right, is a way to keep you in system two and, and, and help you from think, thinking too fast. Um, and you see all sorts of different ways that, you know, this can play out. Um, some of this can go around, like, framing effects. So, 
um, organ organ donor cards, for example, right? Uh, if you have an organ donor card, if you have uh, your your however you you know if it's on your license or whatever, if the default is that you are an organ donor, people will generally keep that that way. If you have to opt into being an organ donor, people are less likely to do it, right? So the way they framed it sort of mitigates bias, and that's an interesting one, right? Because you can argue that's kind of like. I don't know if you want to call that a dark pattern, right? If you're pro-organ donation, you're probably going to say, oh, that's a good thing. If you're sort of anti-organ donation, obviously, <laughs> right? But um, but it is a way to sort of, you know, get past, you know, any biases you might have around that. Um, uh, and in general, like having other perspectives can help mitigate bias, even if it's just that you know, my perspective on a thing is going to be biased. If you have another perspective that's differently biased, at least then we're, you know, not all falling for the same bias and those biases can kind of like cancel each other out or at least lend a different perspective. Um, there's some like more formal strategies people have come up with. Um, I think it was Kahneman and his crew kind of came up with this notion of reference class forecasting, and it has to do with how bad we are at making predictions. Um, and the idea is when you're trying to make a decision about something, uh, rather than just look at, like, to your own expertise around that something, look to similar situations from the past. Um, and uh, the idea is you first identify a reference class, right? What's the example or examples? You know, what, what type of thing are you going to look at? Then you establish a probability distribution for the parameter you're trying to predict, right? So if you're trying to predict how long is this going to take, you sort of take all of those past examples and, you know, use good statistics to figure out what is the probability of it taking this long versus that long. And then you compare, right? And you say, okay, well, probabilistically, this should take this long to happen. Therefore, we should expect this project to follow a similar timeline, right? Um, and uh, one of the things they talk about, you know, why this is tricky is uh, something they call reference class tennis, where you know, you have to argue about what your reference class is going to be. What are you going to look at, and what's you know what you know what's what are you going to consider a, a, a helpful analog? Um, and it's a bit tricky, right? So one of the examples might be we're trying to predict how long it's going to take to write a psychology textbook. So do we look at the average of all books? How long it takes to make any you know any book? Do we look at the average of all textbooks, or do we look at the average of all psychology textbooks? And you might think we want to look at the average of all psychology textbooks, but um, these things talk about looking at an inside versus an outside view, and the inside view is the one that will actually lead you to error, and the just the psychology textbooks is kind of the insider view. The outsider view is to say, well, no, just look at how long it takes to write a book, period, right? What's the average of that? That's actually going to be your better predictor because it's not going to suffer from the biases you have around what you think is your expert field. It's, it's really counterintuitive. Um, so one example of this was when they were trying to figure out the cost for extending some Edinburgh trams. Um, and the person promoting the projects said this is probably going to cost 255 million pounds. Um, but if you actually look at the distributional sample, considering comparable rail projects, it came out to more like 320 million. And then by the time they got to the final report, it was like about a billion pounds. Um, and that was for a smaller project, right? But it's a way to kind of check your math around how long you think something's going to take or how much you think something's going to cost in a way that kind of de-biases your approach. Um, and there's something called the Association for the Advancement of Cost Elimination, um, who even before this um, said that estimate validation, they added estimate validation in 2001 as a distinct step in cost estimation. So this is a group whose whole job is to make people better at um, estimating th costs of things, right? And um, they added this sort of, hey, this was essentially reference class as a, uh, a necessary step or, or a best practice step, even as far back as 2001.
Um, in fact, I like the quote they had around this. This is from their actual rules and regulations. It says, the estimate should be benchmarked or validated against or compared to historical experience and or past estimates of the enterprise and of competitive enterprises to check its appropriateness, competitiveness, and to identify improvement opportunities. Validation examines the estimate from a different perspective and using different metrics than are used in estimate preparation, right? And that's sort of key, right? You have to use something else that you haven't been using before to make your estimate. Um, again, it's that check. And again, I mean, if you think about this, this is kind of like common sense, right? Um, and well, you might think that common sense like is a bias is quick thinking, but usually common sense actually is a great defense against bias. <laughs> like if you look at most biases, they actually don't follow common sense at all. But the common sense stuff of saying, hey, let's look at stuff that happened before, before we make predictions, snap judgments about what's going to happen next, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, there's another concept called bounded rationality. Um, that's sort of a different way. Um, this is especially in economics, a different way of looking at um, how people are going to behave. Um, and rather than saying people are always going to be rational and optimized for the best possible outcome, they're going to be what's called satisficers. Like they're just going to look for the most satisfying outcome, not the most optimal unnecessarily. Um, and this is where things like choice architecture can help. So we talked before about like the organ donor card thing. Um, this is why people, if you go to the store, you're going to reach for the thing that's the closest. And it's why grocers will put the bad fruit up top because it's easiest to get to. They're going to assume that you're going to, you know, your default reaction is to do just the most, the easiest thing, but not necessarily the most optimal thing. Um, so choice architecture comes a way to think about basically either amplifying bias, right? And using it to your advantage, you know, selfishly or to sort of mitigate it. Um, and this is, you know, if you've listened to the podcast episode about design for cognitive bias, it talks a lot about that approach of using choice architecture, trying to improve your user's situation and like mitigate bias um, using kind of design. Um, another thing they've found from kind of an instructional point of view, because instruction on its own has proven kind of problematic or, or not very satisfactory when it comes to mitigating bias, but um, there's certain approaches that they found to be more helpful. So one is a sort of more interactive, like a game approach. And so there's a, a study uh, that I'll link to that on the show notes on facebook.com um, slash um, cognitive bias podcast. Um, so uh, they did a study where they kind of looked at um, how games can um, be do better actually uh, with uh, this kind of training. So they had a game, and this was for analysts, right, who were going to have to um, look at, uh, you know, actual, I don't know if it was the CIA, but it was some sort of, you know, intelligence that they were going to have to look at and, and come up with some kind of solution for, which is fraught with bias, right? Um, and so uh, they had a couple games that they were um, having people play to see if they could mitigate the bias within their decisions. And they would sort of give them tests to sort of understand where their base rate bias was and then sort of see if they did better after, you know, after they played the game. And these were games that taught you about mitigating strategies and basic logic and statistics, right? Um, which, you know, if all of season two was about how we're really worse at logic and probability than we think we are. <laughs> so just understanding basically how those things work can also help. Um, and so they tested before and after, and then eight to 12 weeks later to see if the bias still existed. And they found it was pretty, pretty positive results. So there was one game called Missing the Pursuit of Terry Hughes, which was you're looking for a neighbor and you have to exonerate her of some crime she's been committed of. Um, I actually kind of want to look these games up and play them. They actually sound kind of fun. But the specific biases they were targeting here were fundamental, fundamental attribution error, um, and confirmation bias, 
um, and it worked. Like, there was a reduced bias immediately, and then two months after, they found that the bias was still reduced. There was another game called Missing the Final Secret, where you had to exonerate your employer and uncover a criminal conspiracy. Again, this sounds like real, like, Three Days of the Condor stuff. Like, I would actually love to see this. But um, it was for anchoring projection bias and representativeness. And again, it worked immediately, and then three months later, when they checked up, it was still... Um, uh, a reduction. And it was a pretty strong reduction, right? It was about a 50% reduction for the first game and then about a 30% reduction uh, for the second game. Um, so games can be, I think, I mean, again, this is early days yet, but I feel like games could be a really powerful way to uh, to fight this. They, By the way, they also did a video, which was also effective, but not as effective as the game um, as a training method. So uh, incentivization is another thing I think you can play with, and I'm doing a lot of study in this right now. It's kind of the next... I don't know, talk I think I'm working on, but um, these are other ways to, I wouldn't call it like, you know, mitigating bias, but kind of using it for good. So for example, if you reduce the, the cost of fresh fruit by 50%, you find four times more purchases of fresh fruit, right? So these are ways to, you know, um, improve healthy eating. Um, on the other side of it, right, if you have like... Um, uh, think about like the butterfly ballots, right, in the 2000 election, because they were so poorly designed, they led to bad decision making or confused decision making. So, again, design of systems, design of even objects can kind of uh, impact these things. Um, the earned income credit, which I still don't completely understand, <laughs> and maybe that's the point, right? Uh, people chose it more on their income tax if it was prominent and easy to understand, right? Um, and again, it sounds like kind of a common sense thing, but it's not something people you know think of when they when they think about you know what biases people are gonna gonna fall into. Also, and this one was counterintuitive to me, but voters are more mobilized by high turnout expectations than low because it sounds like voting is the norm. So rather than being afraid to say, yeah, lots of people are going out to vote and being afraid people are going to think of that as an excuse not to vote, it actually works the opposite way because people like to become to be part of the norm. So if they see lots of people are voting, um, then they're actually more likely to go out and vote because they want to be part of the norm. And there's another uh, version of this where Facebook found that if people posted that they had voted, the people who saw that were far more likely to vote, which should scare the hell out of you because think about like, you know, Facebook's a private organization. They can do whatever they want. If they decide that they want to suppress that and not show it to as many people, right, for one candidate versus another, they could do that and, you know, measurably impact the outcome of an election. But, you know, it's not like they haven't done that already. Uh, focusing on the decision-making process. Uh, this is another way to, uh, not the decision maker, this is another way to think about it. So there's a really cool article in the Harvard Business Review uh, from a few years back, I think, um, uh, written in part by Daniel Kahneman. And so when Daniel Kahneman says, hey, I've got some ideas about how to mitigate bias, you pay attention. Um, and I'm going to link to it. Um, it's like, you got to pay for it, and but you should because it's like a really good article and Harvard Business Review has lots of, or yeah, good articles. Anyway, um, but I'll give you like uh, the pressy, right? And so basically what he's talking about is like in organizations, right? Organizations can have biases the same way that people can do because organizations are made up of people. And so when people like CEOs have to make decisions, um, here are things that they should probably be doing to make better decisions because at an organization, a decision is going to be influenced by lots of people. And usually when a CEO makes a decision, they're looking at a decision that's been reviewed by lots of people already. And part of their judgment goes in, is influenced by those reviews. And so what they, um, what Kahneman's basically arguing here is that you need to look at the decision-making process and find ways to de-bias that rather than try to de-bias individual decision-makers, which is way harder. 
Um, so think of it, and I, I love the way he puts it, right? He, he calls it quality control for your decisions, right? And I think in organizations, people are used to the notion of quality control or quality assurance, certainly in my field of work, right? In content strategy and web design, there's this notion of you hit a phase of just qual of QA, they call it, where you're checking to make sure everything works before you launch it. Launch it. it makes perfect sense. Similarly, though, you can say, hey, before we make this decision, make, let's make sure that the process that has gone into this decision is quality. Let's, let's, let's QA the decision itself. Let's QA the decision-making process itself, which I think makes a lot of sense. And he talks about like key questions you can ask right, of the decision um, at these different levels to help make sure it's a quality decision. I'm going to give you a few of these. So um, one is, uh, is there any reason to suspect motivated errors or errors driven by the self-interest of the recommending team, right? So is the person making the recommendation have something to gain by the recommendation they're making, right? Um, are they compromised in some way, whether they realize it or not, right? That's an important question to ask. And it's not even necessarily like, I think you're trying to pull a fast one, although sometimes you might be. Uh, it's also just that, you know, even in situations where people don't think that they're biased um, or influenced, they can be. And there's a great study where they look at doctors who get like pens from pharmaceutical companies, right? And it's a pen. Who cares? It's not going to influence what drug I prescribe, but it does. Like they've done the math. It actually makes a difference. So even when you don't think you're, you're kind of incentivized to make one recommendation over another, you may be. So it's worth checking, right? And to ask, is it even possible? Is there anything you stand to gain uh, by making this recommendation or that recommendation. Um, have the people making the recommendation fallen in love with it? I, I really like this one because I am super guilty of it, right? Once I have an idea that I like, I have, it's very difficult for me to let go, right? Um, I, I, I can't kill my darlings. Like it's, 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 I, I, I get why. Um, confirmation bias works the way it does. So you have to ask someone else, by the way, and, and we'll, We'll loop back to this, but one of the key things about all these questions, they need to be asked by somebody else. The same way when you do QA on a website, it's someone else's job to do the QA, not the people who built it. Similarly here, you need a separate team to question and interrogate the decision-making process, not the people who are making it, because again, they're biased. So, you have, so that team has to say, hey, does it look like that person's fallen in love with that idea, and maybe that's why they're pushing it so hard? Um, are they too close to it now? And I think that's a valid question to ask. Um, and then ask people to submit alternatives just to show that they've considered them, right? So even if you like the idea, great, give me an alternative idea, right? Let's assume for a second that that idea is wrong or that there's a better idea out there. Let's actually find out, right? And this comes back to just the basic notions of the scientific method. Um, and I've talked about this before where, like, I used to think the scientific method was basically, hey, I've got an idea about how the world works, and then I'm going to try out some experiments to see if I'm right. And if I am, um, I'll ask you to try the same thing and you to try the same thing. And if we all get the same result, yay, we've got a new law. But that's not actually it. It's way more rigorous. It's I have an idea about how the world works, and I'm going to try it out. Uh, some experiments to see if I'm right. And if I'm right, I'll have you try it and you try it and you try it. And if you all, all get the same result, the next step is actually for me to say, well, what if I'm wrong? If I'm wrong, what else might be true? Okay, time to go prove that, which is a way more rigorous approach, right? But that's kind of what this is asking you saying, did you consider other alternatives? Even if you like this alternative, even if this alternative works on paper, are there other alternatives that work on paper, right? And maybe those are even better. So you, you sort of have to just as an exercise, try something else. Um, did you actively look for information that would disprove your main hypothesis, right? Like this is literally scientific method. It's like, okay, 
Um, I actively, you know, confirmation bias is actively looking for stuff that confirms what you think is true. This is literally the opposite. It's saying, okay, well, if I'm wrong, what else would be true? That's what this question is. And I think this is a great question to ask of any decision. And it's a real challenge. I think personally, I almost think like this could be like a Zen cone or something like, let me think of something that I really, really believe is true. Um, and then let me ask if I'm wrong, what else would be true and see, you know, actively try some kind of experiments to test that out, right? Uh, it's a very scary thing to do because our beliefs are part of our identity and we don't like to challenge that, but I think it's a worthy, you know, exercise if we want to have, you know, integrity in our decisions. Um, uh, another one, uh, I really like this one. If you had to make this decision again in a year, what information would you want and can you get more of it now, right? I, I like that sort of thought experiment because it forces you to kind of future cast, which we're really, really bad at. We're really, really bad at thinking about our future selves, but uh, it's a really valuable experiment because you get to sort of say, well, will I be happy with this decision a year from now? And are there consequences I can imagine that won't really manifest until a year from now? And if they do, well, what thing would I know now? What will I wish I'd known now? Because we're used to like regret. We're used to thinking, oh, if, oh, if, only, if only I had known then, well, maybe you could, right? And that's what this question is kind of getting at. Um, is the worst case bad enough? I really like this one because it reminds me of like uh, Black Mirror. Um, so speculative design is a way to think about a problem, you know, in the future, like let's say a, a technology you're working on. Um, and Black Mirror, the show, does a great job of this, right? It says, here's some future technology um, and uh, here's how it would play out if real human beings used it. Uh, the showrunner kind of calls it um, uh, weak people using powerful technology. Um, and it's usually very accurate, right? This is exactly how people would use that technology, and it's usually terrible. But that kind of, let's think about how this will actually play out, and are we actually thinking about the worst possible scenario? Like, could it actually be even worse than this? Because usually it could. Um, and that's, again, another way to kind of, like, future-proof your ideas. Um, I did a... Um, I did a session once um, where we did a speculative design um, exercise and we took, you know, a really not even near future, just like an actual technology. And we said, okay, let's say someone's building an app that's going to talk about, you know, tell you what the crime statistics are for your neighborhood, you know, based in part on, you know, reporting from the neighborhood, but also crime reports and like have these different data sources. And basically it's okay. I want you to write a black mirror episode about this technology. Um, and we came up with like a season's worth of Black Mirror just based on all the things that could go wrong um, without even realizing that they could go wrong with that particular technology. You know, a small example, you might have someone who is uh, an immigrant in that neighborhood and they might be afraid to report crime because they might be afraid of the police coming and deporting them. Um, and so your statistics are going to be obviously skewed, right? Um, all sorts of just horrible, nasty things that can happen. So think about that black mirror approach. Um, in fact, I've said before, um, I think anybody working on a new technology by law should have to write a black mirror episode about that technology. Um, so, uh, a similar kind of approach, um, and I, we, we've actually used this at work before. Um, the premortem, which I didn't realize was invented by a psychologist, a guy named Gary Klein, but a premortem is instead of a postmortem, it's a premortem. You go into the future and the worst, you imagine the worst has already happened and you ask yourself, how did we get here? Right? So we're going into the future. Everything went wrong. Um, what happened? Like, let's think about what would have happened. And again, it helps you kind of like see where those landmines are in your thinking and in the steps you haven't thought of yet. Um, 
And like I was saying, like it needs to be someone else doing this work. It can't be you, the decision maker. It needs to be someone else who comes in and looks at the decision making process and says, okay, let's go poke holes in this. So I talk sometimes about red team, blue team, which is a method that journalists use, that the military uses to kind of like future proof their ideas or their plans or their articles they're working on. And um, the basic idea is you have a blue team who's going to go and do the work, right, and build the story or build the plan or in this case, build the prototype or whatever, you know, the thing it is you're making or the decision you're making. But then the red team comes in and just tears it apart for one day. They just come in for one day and they just kind of tear it apart. And these are the kinds of questions that the red team would be asking are these de-biasing questions. Um, and again, it's not about taking any one individual and making them unbiased. It's really saying, well, let's look at the process and are there ways that the process can help account for the biases of the people who are making the decision. And I think that's a really smart way to do it because, as we've said before, just knowing you have the bias doesn't keep you from committing it because a lot of times it's unconscious. You don't even realize you're committing it. Um, uh, another place people have really started to interrogate this is in software engineering. And there's this notion of when you're doing tests to see if software works, instead of doing a test that's there to prove if it works, you do tests that tries to break it. You, it's called failing the code. You try to make the, you try to make it go wrong rather than try to make it go right. And it's a different kind of test. Um, uh, but there are studies that show that that produces better code uh, because it's more resilient. Because you've actually, again, if 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 I'm wrong, what else would be true? Let's try to make that happen. Um, We've talked a little bit about this before, especially on the episode with Zwei Kwok and a little bit with um, Michael Bryan as well. But there's this notion that meditation can actually be a very powerful inhibitor of bias. And there's actually research behind this. And again, I'll post some links to some studies here. But for example, people who practice mindfulness are less likely to fall for what's called correspondence bias. So basically, there's an experiment. We might have talked about this before where... Um, you have someone read an essay that's either pro-nuclear power or anti-nuclear power. Um, and the uh, essay was, you know, just written by someone. You don't know what their, which way they landed on that issue. They were just asked to write a, 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 an essay that took one position or another, whether or not they personally held that position. But then you ask the person reading it, hey, do you think this person actually believes this? Do you think this person wrote this because they have that position or were they just hired to do it and they don't, you don't, you don't actually know? Um, so most, you know, uh, the control group, like left to your own devices, you will assume that the person who wrote a pro-nuclear essay is in fact themselves pro-nuclear. The person who was, you know, um, anti will is, is in fact anti. Like that's the sort of expected outcome. And we've talked about that before. But people who've practiced, you know, given, been given like a mindfulness meditation exercise for a little while and then go and, and, and do this uh, experiment are much less likely to actually exhibit that bias. And they're sort of like, oh, I don't know if they feel that way right? Like, which is a more reasonable answer. Um, so meditation makes you more reasonable. It's not a, an outcome that we expected, but it, it tends to bear out in a lot of these experiments. And a lot of, you know, season three, we talked a lot about social biases and self, um, you know, self uh, aggrandizing kind of biases, um, or fundamental attribution error, like these things where you don't really consider the context of the other person. Um, but you do consider your own, like meditation seems to mitigate that. Um, so, uh, there's another one um, around uh, kind of rejection effects. You know, Alec and I certainly have this where you have anxiety about meeting new people. Um, uh, there's an experiment where they, you know, found that people who practice mindfulness meditations before those situations tend to have less anxiety around those situations. Um, in another study, they kind of looked at... Um, they actually did fMRI studies of people who had or hadn't performed meditation and then sort of said, hey, you're going to see some disturbing images or, hey, you're going to see some positive images. Um, the people who had gone through the, uh, again, relatively brief mindfulness exercise um, 
showed less activity in the amygdala, you know, the fear center of the brain, and more activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is more of the, you know, um, uh, self-control and kind of like chill the fuck out part of the brain. Um, so the notion is that, you know, meditation can also sort of make you less, you know, feel for less prone to anxiety, basically make that less of your default when thinking about these things. Um, uh, and finally, you know, there was an episode of, um, you are not so smart podcast that talks about sleep. And these are early studies. I'll stress like this hasn't been replicated a bunch yet, but, um, so initially, I think it was an experiment around whether or not you can just catch up on sleep on the weekend. And so they had one group who like got enough sleep throughout the week and then another group who didn't get enough sleep, but then got a lot of sleep on the weekend. And they sort of compared them on a bunch of tasks. And, you know, the TLDR is that, no, you cannot catch up on sleep on the weekend. It doesn't work. You need to get enough sleep every night. Uh, They're doing a follow-up study with a similar kind of cohort. And the idea was, well, huh. I wonder what the impact of sleep is on, you know, or lack of sleep is on bias, right? And so they would give them, I think it was the IAT, but some kind of bias, you know, associative bias test. And what they expected was that, okay, the people who get enough sleep are going to show less bias, and the people who don't get enough sleep are going to show more. What they actually discovered is that the people who didn't get enough sleep did show more bias. The people who got enough sleep didn't show any bias, which just blows my mind, right? And it's not that those people weren't biased, right? They just didn't show it. Um, And I feel like, you know, if I think about, you know, uh, officer involved, you know, or shootings where, you know, people are shot by the police who are unarmed, unarmed black men shot by the police, right? And you think about that situation and you think about um, how little sleep the average police officer gets, and we know this because nobody in America gets enough sleep, right? Um, and you, you're forced to kind of, it forces the question, right? If they'd gotten enough sleep, would that person still be alive right now, right? Because again, it isn't that it suddenly makes them not racist or it doesn't make them less feel for, fearful of black people. It's just that isn't their default, right? Their snap judgment. It doesn't, it doesn't manifest in the behavior, right? The bias doesn't turn, go from being something in your head to something that you physically do. That's the idea of that study. And again, it is just an idea. I think there's still a replication that needs to happen with that. But that, that could be like one of those, like, you know, golden age, like, oh my God, if everybody got enough sleep, would that alone make this world a better place, right? <laughs> um, in a lot of ways. Sorry, the other thing I think about is like, we already have discovered this in certain areas where like pilots mandatory have to get a certain amount of sleep. I'm pretty sure um, with surgeons now they're starting to do that. I think truck drivers, uh, there's some degree of that. So there is some, like we understand certain fields need this. I wonder if even just police officers, like, you know, does law enforcement, do we need to set some kind of mandatory sleep around that just to save a few lives? I mean, I don't know. I I would love to see that experiment. Anyway, um, so I wanted to kind of, like I said, there's only a couple episodes left, you know, two, three more left. And so as we start to wind down, I kind of wanted to have at least one episode where we talked about solutions, right, and approaches and not just, oh, my God, here's this horrible bias. Good luck. Um, So for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and we will see you next time. (laughs) 